Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, it is my joy tonight to be able to introduce our special speaker. Um, to say that he is a living legend at the University of Virginia would be an understatement. Um, he is the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics here at the university, and he is probably the most beloved professor here at the university. Of course, I may be partial, but I think it's true. Um, Ken has taught more students at UVA than any other professor in the history of the university. He is also such an accomplished economist. He's been an expert witness before the Supreme Court three times in his field. And so that is a statement of itself, how he is esteemed in his field. But more than that, Ken is probably the longest standing Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. You're like, I didn't know Ken was a Chi Alpha. He is. Let me tell you how. Chi Alpha stands for Christ's Ambassador. And he has been an ambassador for Christ on these grounds since 1967. 1967, y'all. Okay, so. I've been here for the last 20 of those years, and I have seen his faithfulness to Jesus impact many lives. I've been struck the more I've gotten to know Ken not just by the accolades of his professional career, but by his character. I would describe Ken as a person of courage and a person of humility, a person of kindness and generosity, and a person of a great devotion to Jesus. In fact, if I could say what I hope you will be like after you graduate the University of Virginia, if I could say, if you could be like somebody that I know, I would say Exhibit A would be Ken Elzinga. I have so much respect for him, his, his uh, authentic faith, and the life that he lives. And so I, it is one of the joys of my life to be able to call um, Professor Elzinga a friend. And so will you guys give a great, big, warm, Chi Alpha welcome to Professor Ken Elzinga. I know you've been welcomed to MNL before, but I'd like to welcome you to Monday Night Live, in part because we're live. And that has meant so much to me in terms of my own teaching, but also just this year to be able to see you, even with your masks, uh, to be live and in person. I did not go into teaching to teach to a, a camera. I went into teaching to get to know students. And it's so great to be with you this evening uh, where you're not in some pixelated image. I know it's a little bit late to say this, but let me say welcome in particular to first-year students to UVA, and in a sense to second year, because you had such a bizarre first year that I'm hoping this second year for you is one that is, gives you many of the experiences that you were deprived of in your first year. Some of you in this group may be in my Econ 201 class, and, uh, and this talk, okay, thank you. Uh, I'll just give you a heads up. You're probably aware this talk will be quite different than the talks I give in McLeod Auditorium. Now, at times, when I give a talk, the topic is a sign. That is, Pete Violette will ask me to speak on prayer or evangelism. So that becomes the topic. And then sometimes I get to pick the topic because I think, well, this would be a good topic for the audience to learn about. And then sometimes I pick a topic because I need to learn 
or I need to be reminded of the topic. And that's the situation this evening. I know from interacting with hundreds and hundreds of UVA students over many years that this evening's topic is important. I also know, because I swim in the same UVA culture as you do, that it's very important for me to revisit this topic. So let's get started. I've been told that during the Roman Empire, when a stranger approached a Roman guard, the guard would cry out to the stranger, who are you and why are you here? Can we see the next slide? There's an example of it. Now, give that a moment's thought. Who are you and why are you here? That's what lawyers call a compound question. That is, there are two different pieces of information that are being sought in the very same inquiry. Who are you and why are you here? Now, one truthful response to the scene behind me might be, um, I'm a Jewish merchant. My name is Nadad, and I'm here to bring spices to the Roman governor of this province. Another truthful response, but one with a totally different meaning, might have been, I'm a Jewish zealot. My name is Jemuel, and I'm here to assassinate the Roman governor of this province. And that guard is going to act very differently to those two responses. Now, I want to take that compound question into the present time and to a community in which we find ourselves, UVA, and the area around Mr. Jefferson's academical village. So let's ask that question of two students who've been out running early on a Sunday morning. Could we see the next slide? Picture this scene. They're on <laughs> Alderman Road, and they're waiting. They're waiting. They're on Alderman Road, and, and first year may not know exactly where this is, but they're at Ivy Road, uh, and the, waiting for the light to change. And we ask them, who are you and why are you here? And the first UVA student says, oh, I'm the result of a random co-location of atoms. That's who I am. Why am I here? Because millions of years ago, evolution caused me to be here in this material form. And then the second person responds, I'm a child of the living God who created the heavens and the earth. And why am I here? God cares about me. And I'm here to know him and enjoy him forever. And then the light turns green and the two students sprint across Ivy Road towards John Paul Jones Arena. And we realize that their responses are at opposite ends of a worldview spectrum. The two students are, are running along side by side, but they are in one sense worlds apart. Now many people at UVA are like the first runner. They are secularists. That is, they have a worldview in which their lives have no eternal purpose because they believe the concept of an eternal purpose doesn't exist. Now, I want to be clear about this first runner. Runners like this enjoy life. They value their life. They probably love their family and friends, but they don't believe there's a God who cares about them because they don't believe there is a God to begin with. Their motto could be like a famous beer commercial that I remember, maybe Pete remembers, but none of you would. The commercial had these words. Could we see the next slide? You only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can. That was a beer commercial for Schlitz, which was once the number one selling beer in the United States. And this was a famous slogan of Schlitz. You only go around once, so you better grab all the gusto you can. Or in more recent vernacular, YOLO, you only live once. 
Now, some people at UVA are like the second runner. They have a worldview that contends they are created in God's image. And that image makes them so special that God paid a great price to love and redeem them from their sin. And contrary to the beer commercial, they do not believe that you only go around once. In fact, they believe life on earth is like a blink compared to the eternal life that God promises to those that he actually calls his children, his children. Now, this first view concedes that through evolution, the human species has certain skills and intelligence that other life forms do not have. Could we see the next slide? But fundamentally, humans are animals. They are featherless bipeds, to put it starkly. And evolution explains our large cranial capacity and evolution accounts for our selfish gene. This, as you see behind me, is how we evolved. Now the second view contends that humans are very different from animals. Of all the species on earth, humans are the only ones that bear the image of God. What scholars call amago dei, amago dei. This expression comes from the Bible in one of the first sentences in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're told that God created man in his image. Can we see the next slide? This slide is one of the most famous artistic portrayals of that biblical proposition, Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. Now, setting aside how Michelangelo interpreted this, how might imago dei be put in words? Could we see this next quote by Hannah Anderson? Who are you and why are you here? Well, Ms. Hannah Anderson says, imago dei means that your life has purpose and meaning because God has made you to be like himself. Imago Dei means that your life has intrinsic value, not simply because of who you are as an individual, but because of who he is as your God. Imago Dei means that your life is sacred because he has stamped his identity upon yours. So who are you and why are you here? The Bible teaches that not only are we as human beings different from all the other living creatures, but we were created by God to have dominion over the animals of the land, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. So if humans were placed on earth to care for the place, that is, to be in charge, or as the Bible puts it, to have dominion over the earth, that makes human beings something like, something like God's hired hands. And that's a useful metaphor. However, humans were not simply placed here to take care of the place. We were placed here to be in relationship with a God who created us. We're more than hired hands. So think about an employer who hires someone to do a job. That relationship is commercial. It's instrumental. A normal employer may respect her employees, but typically an employer does not love her employees. And we would never expect an employer to lay down her life for an employee. But in the Bible's view of who I am and why am I here, the answer is I am someone so special so much loved that God paid an enormous price to adopt me into his kingdom. 
and make me one of his children. So who am I and why am I here? The Bible describes me as someone who was kidnapped by Satan. And God thought me so special that he paid a great ransom, the life of his own son, to redeem me, that is to adopt me into his heavenly family. Now perhaps the most peculiar and yet familiar portrayal of this view of who we are and why we're here is sketched out in a Bible verse. And it's a Bible verse that is familiar even to people who deny God's existence. This Bible verse has appeared and been talked about so many times that most atheists that I know and agnostics that I know can recite the words. They're found in a book written by a follower of Jesus named John. And they've come to have a numerical designation that's very familiar probably to most of you in this room, if not all of you. John 3.16. And these words have been translated into hundreds and hundreds of languages. Now in English, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. I just want to stop there a moment because these words are so familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now here's a picture of a prominent athlete. Can we see the next slide? who has the Bible reference on his face. I don't think that's a tat, but uh, I think it's just paints, um, a paints on his cheeks. But if you just take that down for a moment and leave the blank screen, some people consider this the most famous verse in the Bible. Some people call it the gospel in a nutshell. And that word gospel means good news and the term nutshell in abbreviated form and just says, okay, how can we put this into one sentence? So we might think of John 3.16 as the good news in a nutshell. So I want to unpack that sentence and I want to compare it to that runner's first worldview. That runner was over on Alderman Road in Ivy who would hold that there's no God. So right off the bat, the verse makes no sense to the first runner that we met on Alderman Road because the verse begins, for God so loved the world. But for those who believe in God, that verse says something very remarkable about the character of God. That this is a, not a God who hates the world like many of the gods of false religions or is indifferent to the world. It's not a God who gets life on earth started and then leaves the scene. Quite the contrary. If this is verse is an accurate portrayal of God, if it's an accurate description, then we have a God who loves the world. And he loves it in an extravagant way. And he loves it in a costly way by giving up his son to provide a way for human beings, this species that bears the image of God, to have eternal life. Now, everything I've said so far has been introductory to what I want to talk about. So if you're a foodie, think of what you just heard as just the appetizer. I want to go now to the main course. The two UVA students who were running on Alderman Road answered the question of, who are you and why are you here in very different ways. But each one, in doing so, expressed a view of their identity. And identity, that's a word Emmy used a lot in her remarks as well. So let's leave Alderman Road and go to my office in Monroe Hall, second floor, room 216. Some of you have been there, but not as many as usual because of the pandemic. Students often come to my office to talk about their future plans and to help them out and to try and give them counsel. 
I want to know more about them. So I want to know who they are and why they're here in order to help them take the identity they have and help them shape it into what they want to be and where they want to go. And if you ask most UVA students to describe who they are and why they're here, you get something like this. Could we see the next slide, please? It's a resume. Who am I? Well, my name and address. They're part of my identity. But who I am mainly boils down to a list of my credentials and accomplishments. And why am I here? Well, take a look at the line that describes my career goals. Now, I have seen and offered advice about hundreds of resumes and CVs over the years. They all provide valuable information for the labor market and for doing graduate studies and getting scholarships and internships. What is sad, very sad, is that for many UVA students, this document or one like it is their identity. And if something goes wrong or different from what appears on their resume, they are devastated. Because what's on this eight and a half by 11 inch sheet of paper represents their understanding of who they are. The theme of my talk this evening is that your CV is data. As an economist, I recognize that data can be important, but the good news is that the data about you need not be and should not be your fundamental identity. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, your fundamental identity, your fundamental identity is that you belong to Jesus. And your worth is not represented by what's on your resume, either in terms of what you accomplished or what you have not accomplished. Now, let me say something else about counseling and evaluating students at Mr. Jefferson's University. I have never seen a totally honest resume at UVA. I have seen many that are impressive, double major and minor, check. High GPA, check. Dean's list, check. Extracurricular activities, check. Community service, check. Summer internship, check. Computer, computer languages, R, Python, Stata, PowerPoint, Excel, check. What's missing is a line item that reads, truth be told, I screw up a lot. And just like everyone else, I desperately need a savior to make me right with God. I've never seen that on a resume. Now, for those of you who seem effortlessly successful, who seem to have it all together, and who, who try so hard to make your identity based on accomplishments, let me make a forecast. If you make yourself your own God, that God will fail. No matter how talented and hardworking you are, no matter how successful you've been, no matter the prospects of your future career success, no matter how impressive that resume of yours is, you come up short. You have a desperate need you need to be reconciled with the God who created you, just like all the other people who don't have resumes like yours. And then on the flip side, no matter how impressive a resume is, no matter how many accomplishments are summarized on that one page, the message of the Christian gospel is that you are so much more valuable than what appears on your resume. You count so much more than what's on that sheet. Now let me speak to those, and there are many at UVA, who are already disappointed in their resume. The student from whom I adopted this resume is someone I know very well, 
And he once told me that he felt ashamed, disappointed, and even embarrassed with his resume. As a professor who's taught at UVA for many years, I am well acquainted with the pressure to make your resume your identity. Now here's what one UVA student who goes to the same church I attend recently wrote. Can we see the next slide? A college campus can be one of the most difficult places to truly serve and pursue the Lord. From the moment we get in, we are sent the message that if we just work harder, do more, or get to know the right people, we can secure success for ourselves by ourselves. We're taught to constantly be climbing the ladders and accruing more and more positions of power, leadership, and popularity. We're supposed to be the best and brightest in classes and have the most fun on the weekends. Ambition and passion, of course, are wonderful, but it can feel impossible to bear the countercultural message of Jesus to slow down, be still. As in, be still and know that I am God. That's Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. Now, how does one break through the cultural pressure that this student describes? Should you drop out of school or not study or not work hard? No, there is another way. It's a way you take a day at a time. And let me be candid here as someone who's much older than you, it is a way you will have to work at all of your life. How does one come to understand deep down that their specialness or their identity is completely separate from a resume? Now, before I dive into specifics, let me acknowledge the concepts of identity, self-esteem, self-worth. These are not uniquely Christian. Many secular counselors and psychologists repeatedly stress their importance. However, I believe a Christian view of identity is different. One Christian author put it this way, some secular psychologists focus on self-worth with a goal simply of feeling good about ourselves. A biblical self-concept, however, goes far beyond that perspective. It's an accurate perception of ourselves and God based on the truth of God's word. An accurate biblical self-context concept contains both strength and humility, both sorrow over sin and joy about forgiveness, a deep sense of our need for God's grace, and a deep sense of the reality of God's grace. Now let me suggest four ways of developing what this author calls a biblical self-concept. And my prayer is that maybe just one of these will connect with you. Can we see the next slide, please? First, don't ignore or put off reading the Bible. Now, I know that some, sounds like something your Sunday school teacher, if you had one, might have said. But in reading the Bible, notice how over and over again God is active in the world. Start with that perspective. God cares about people's, and he cares about loving them. And he cares about your obedience to him. God cares about putting our trust in him. In him, not our accomplishments. God cares about whether we put our faith in his son, Jesus. God wants to be able to say to us after our time on earth ends, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice that word faithful. We're never told that in the Bible that God is waiting to say, well done, you accomplished a lot through your efforts at expressive individualism. 
That just isn't what the Bible says. It's well done, good and faithful servant. Second, get your theology straight. The kind of stuff you're learning here, learn that God loves you more than you can imagine. That is a central theme of John 3.16. For God so much loved the world that he gave his only son so that you and I might not perish but have eternal life. So not only does God love you more than you might imagine, the other thing that we need to understand is that our sins are much greater than we are ever going to realize or acknowledge. And that's true for me and it's true for you. Our sins and our shortcomings, we don't put those on our resumes, but God knows of them. That too is why John 3.16 is so central. You and I need the sacrifice of the shed blood of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness of our sins. And then third, you cannot all by yourself establish your own individual identity. Hear me on that. You cannot by yourself establish an individual identity. You can establish an identity that sets you apart from others. And I observe this a lot, but some of the people who are trying to do this, they're trying to say for establish an identity that's different from their parents. And that would mean nothing more than trying to have your identity established by the rejection of some other identity. When it comes to identity, there are two big choices. You can either let other people or other organizations give you an identity, or you can let God give you your identity. Tim Keller has written of how your generation, more so than mine, I'm fully aware of this from my years of teaching here, your generation, more than mine, operates under enormous pressure to fulfill all of your dreams regarding money, success, fame, sex, appearance, power. And if this doesn't happen, you failed. This is a huge burden for your generation to shoulder. A huge burden, a terrible burden. Economists aren't always accurate in predicting gross domestic product or the rate of inflation, but I'm gonna predict that for some UVA students, this burden will crush you. It will crush you if it hasn't already. And then along comes the Christian faith. And it says something different about your identity. You're already made in the image of God. The amago dei. That's who you are. You already count for something. And this comes not by merit or achievement, but from being human. It comes from being human. As Keller put it, it's an identity that's not achieved, it's received. You don't achieve it, you receive it. And I want you to think a moment about the Apostle Paul. He's one of the most influential people ever to walk on this earth. And he wrote a lot about identity. And he wrote that his identity was not going to be found in the people, think for a moment of all the people you know who have the name Paul, it's not going to be found in the cities that are named after him, like St. Paul, Minnesota. It's not going to be found in all the hospitals that are named after him, all the schools and all the hundreds and hundreds of churches that are named after him, all the books written about him, but rather his identity, as he put it, was to be found in Jesus. And he went on to write, not having a record of my own that comes from my performance and effort, but which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, Paul wrote several letters 
to many churches around Europe and Asia Minor. And the people at that time, just like you and I today, also were struggling with questions of their identity. And to help his readers understand this issue of identity, Paul used the phrase in Christ or in him or in the Lord. And he did this about 160 times. Now, for those of you in Econ 201 with me, if in McLeod Auditorium, I went over the same principle 160 times, you would probably think this is really important in Econ 201. Well, the Apostle Paul thinks this is really important. He writes that in Christ, we can never be separated from God's love. In Christ, our labor is not in vain. In Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In Christ, we will rise from the dead. And I could quite literally go on all evening. Okay, a quick review of three points before we get to number four. Read the Bible. It's God's written word to tell you why you're here and why you're here, why you're, wh who you are and why you're here. If I may put it this way, it's God's love letter to us. And second, let John 3.16 really sink in. Don't let it just be a cliche that you've heard or you see at a football game. Claim it as your own. For God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus so that you can have a relationship with him now into eternity. Third, let God give you your identity, not the world. And now what's number four? Number four, you may need to redeploy your resources. Now that's econ jargon. It may mean rearranging your priorities, changing how you spend your time. Let me give you an example from a UVA student whose spiritual maturity was an inspiration to me. And I will just say as an aside, a lot of my Christian growth over the years has come from hanging around with my students and learning and watching them. And this is one example that helped me. It may help you as well. These are words written by a student in Chi Alpha. Can we see the slide? I was burning the candle at both ends with extracurriculars and classes, and I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. My prayer and devotional life had faded to non-existence, yet I continued to cling to this UVA concept of success. Now, what did this student do? Can we see the next slide? I made the difficult decision to change my major and career aspirations in such a way that I believe would honor the Lord with the greater degree of balance it created. Now there's a principle here, adopting a posture of dependence rather than independence. And there's an application here, reallocating time to start seeing life not as a game to win, but as a gift to savor. Now that word dependence points us back to identity. If we answered, who are you and why you're here? The way that the second runner did, we would identify ourselves as God's children made in his image, loved and cherished by our heavenly father. Let me say something about children that everybody here knows, but I wanna just repeat it. Children necessarily depend on their parents. If you spend any time with babies or small children, I'm thinking recently of a student who was part of this fellowship, John Thier, who I discipled, became a Christian largely through Chi Alpha. John and his wife Jessica just produced a baby on Saturday. John's life is gonna be really changed 
because this child is going to depend upon John and Jessica for the care. Um, babies depend for their very lives on parents to care for them. Um, as God's children, we have that same need, that same dependence on Him. Most of us aren't very good at recognizing the need in our day-to-day lives, but we are dependent upon God's sustaining provision and our eternal lives are dependent upon the saving work of Jesus' death and resurrection. So who am I? Well, I'm a child of God, loved and dependent, loved and dependent on my Heavenly Father. Why am I here? Because God so delights in me that he created me to be in relationship with him. Why else am I here? Well, one reason is so that I can tell you and tell others about this father who loves his children and who delights in them and longs for them to know him and be with him forever. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this talk, I said the subject of my talk was as much about my instruction as it is for you. Now, let me turn to how I want this talk to end for me and for you. Please don't think of this talk as a to-do list in order to be a better Christian. The central point of my talk is not here are four things you should do in the Christian life, like here are four things you should know about demand elasticity in Econ 201. If I were to say to you or to myself, Ken, you need to do these four things, I might turn away thinking, I can't do that. I'll try and I'll fail and I'll end up feeling guilty or discouraged. A list of instructions is part of my talk, but it is not, as Sherry Moore, an accounting professor here would put it, it is not the bottom line. The bottom line is that there is one who did live a perfect life. I can't live a perfect life, none of you can live a perfect life, but Jesus did. And he did this not to show us up, but because he loves us. So this talk is not really about you or me, it's about Jesus, who ultimately is the one who wants to confer upon you and me the high status, the high status, the status that can never be put on a resume, that we are children of the living God. Your one-page resume will never do that. You know how long my resume has become after all these years? 13 pages, and my resume can't do that. That's why we don't just follow the teachings of Jesus. It's why we worship him as Lord and Savior. Now, analogies are just analogies. And this one may or may not be helpful to you. Let me offer it. It has been helpful to me. Maybe it's because I hang around with lawyers a lot in my research and my consulting. It's as if I'm in a court of law charged with all kinds of sins, selfishness, hatred of others, lust, broken promises, theft, not doing things I know I should have done, and I know I did all these things. And the judge finds me guilty. And I can't deny the finding because I know all the evidence is true. Unless you're a victim of self-deception or you have a self-righteousness that simply blinds you to who you really are, you know that you're no different than I am in this regard. And the penalty for my sins and wrongdoings is more than I can pay. What happens next is astonishing. It's astonishing. The judge says to me, you're guilty as charged, but I'm going to pay the penalty on your behalf. And the judge comes down from his position of power, takes off his robes of authority, and goes off to pay the penalty for all the things I did. 
Now, if you see that analogy and you put it in the context of the Christian faith, do you see why the Christian faith is so much more than a bunch of rules? Do you see from this analogy that the one who condemns me for my sins and unrighteousness is also the one who saves me from my sins and unrighteousness? You see from this analogy to the Christian faith why followers of Jesus worship him. You see why I love Jesus, why I call him Savior. The penalty that I could not pay, Jesus paid with his death on a cross. No wonder one of the most beloved Christian hymns for me and for many other followers is called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Jesus going to the cross on my behalf is an act of love that leaves us wondering, can it be? Can we see the next slide? This is an old hymn by Charles Wesley. The sheet music is in the upper right-hand corner. You can't read it from here. There's a modern portrayal over it in the other corner. But the line is, amazing love. So amazing, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I want those words to be part of my identity and yours as well. While the worship band comes up, I'd like to pray for you. Heavenly Father, um, what a privilege to speak to this group. When I think of all the talent, energy that you've given to these young people, I think, wow, what would happen if this were trans- these represented transformed lives, young men and women whose core identity was that they belong to Jesus and they are ready to do what Jesus would have them do to be still and know God and then to go forth as children of the living God eager to do the will and purposes of their Savior so I pray for these students Lord it's still new in the school year may this be a year in which students in Chi Alpha and other followers of Jesus around the grounds administrators students faculty that we would be the aroma of Christ at this university so that those who don't know Jesus will come to know his love. For those who are struggling with who they are in Christ, that they will become so rooted in the gospel that every one of them would be able to come up here and give a testimony of what Jesus has done for me. Lord, I thank you for these students. I ask your richest blessing upon them. I ask your protection for them from the evil one who would want to unravel their lives, who would want to unravel this fellowship. Lord, stay the evil one from that. And we will give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, I pray that tonight as we leave this meeting, that the truth that Ken shared with us that comes from your word would saturate our hearts. As we walk these grounds this week, our hearts would be saturated that our identity is not achieved, it is received by your grace and your love and your goodness. Lord, I pray that people would walk free as a result, walk lighter, that those who came in feeling like they were being crushed by trying to achieve their identity, would walk out in the freedom of who they are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Would you give a hand to Ken for coming? So good.
Well, it's my joy to give the benediction tonight. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 